Wonderful. Thank you very much, Christine. We have a lot uh, to get through this morning and some really meaty things too. So we're going to enjoy this, uh, but for an hour of your time. (laughs) Joking. Um, Let me pray for us before we uh, get into that. Father God, thank you and praise you for your word to us this morning. Thank you that it is good for us. Lord, even the difficult and the uncomfortable bits, thank you uh, that you give it to us for our good and, and for our joy and for your glory. Lord, we pray that we would listen well this morning. Um, with open and honest hearts before you, and help us to be changed and more in love with the Lord Jesus because of it. In, your, in the mighty name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, welcome to uh, our next part in uh, 1 Peter's letter to these elect exiles, and welcome to what is possibly the biggest, most meaty, most applicable part of this book uh, for us, and, and also, as you'll have picked up from the reading alone, some of the most uncomfortable parts that we could be reading for us. It is a part of the letter that has lots of difficult things and a lot of difficult things for us to have to get our head around and to explain well. Now, before we get into it, and for fear of uh, beating a well-thrashed drum, I do want to give us a bit of a handle on where the whole letter is going and how it all fits together, where we've come from and where we're heading. This is important we do this at this point, for we've actually reached something of a major marker in Peter's thought for the first time, and we know that because of the word beloved. For those of you who were in slobs last Sunday, we had a good look at this, and you'll know that beloved is only used twice um, in the letter here in chapter 2, verse 11, and over the next few pages in chapter 4, verse 12. And these two beloveds are the heading statements, if you like, that sort of fronts the next major part in Peter's thought. So ignoring the Bible chapters for a minute, this beloved in chapter 2, verse 11, is the start of Peter's original chapter 2, if you like. And then the next beloved is the start of Peter's original chapter 3, which then draws the letter to a close. Now, why does that matter? Well, it helps us understand that Peter is moving on to a new part of what he is wanting to say to us. Peter is moving us into looking further into this grace of God and us knowing how to stand firm in it. It's as if Peter closes an argument and then says, Beloved, right, my loved ones, loved ones in God, you've got all that? Good. Building on what we've learned... Let me now move you on. And so today, and so today we, we move on, but we do have to look at where we've come from. Otherwise, what happens today isn't going to make sense. And we've seen various themes uh, that run through this letter, various theme tunes. One of the main theme tunes that Peter writes of is that we are elect ex- exiles, but also the theme over us of all that which is imperishable, that word that sort of comes up time and time and again. As we go through 1 Peter, we count four imperishable things. An imperishable inheritance kept in heaven for us, our imperishable faith, more precious than gold, refined by fire, the imperishable blood of Christ through which we are redeemed, and then the imperishable word of God that has brought the good news to us. And today we're going to see our fifth one, what it means to be imperishably beautiful. And this theme of the imperishable seems to say that Peter is urging people to live for a future that is totally safe. Nothing can happen to the future that God has prepared for you. But why is it that we need to be told that through this letter? Well, that is because this Peter that Peter is writing to, they are all suffering, presently suffering, suffering day in, day out for the sake of the gospel. The beginning and the end of the letter points to that. Grief, sin, various trials, though now for a little while, these are the things that you are suffering in the present. Chapter 1, verse 6, chapter 5, verse 10, it's it's both bookended with suffering. Here are Christians going through a really hard time being reminded of their safe future. Don't give up. But even that hasn't quite summarized everything in 1 Peter. 
Because while you're having a, a hard time looking for the future, Peter wants us to do the most difficult thing of all, and that is to stand firm in the midst of all of it. Chapter 5, verse 12. It is a, it is a true grace of God reality that you are suffering as you are part of God's eternal imperishable community. So stand firm in it. Stay there. Don't move. And to do those two things together is one of the most difficult combinations in the world, to suffer and to stand firm. Those of you who are doctors, you will know, uh, I hope this is right, otherwise this isn't going to work, <laughs> you'll know there is a, a reflex action that God has put into your spinal cord that when you suddenly realise your hand is burning, it, it withdraws your arm. It sort of doesn't even, you don't even think about it. It, it almost doesn't even go through your brain. It's a neural pathway that, that just warns you that something's going on and it's, it's a hardwired instinct. It's literally all you can do in that moment. And while spiritually that is true too, we want to withdraw. You're being grieved. I want to get out of that situation. It's a, it's a knee-jerk reaction. It's everything I want to do, spiritually and practically, physically. And, the, and Peter and, and, and the Spirit, through him, through the Word of God, is telling us to override that knee-jerk automatic spiritual reaction and to stay there. And that is really hard which is why we need all the encouragement of the imperishable future pulling us forward and keeping us going. Which is where we come to today's big passage. For today, we are looking square in the face of, what the, of the practical reality of what standing firm in the true grace of God actually looks like, what it actually looks like in the real world, what it actually looks like in, in the everyday world, and specifically in the everyday scenarios of society at large, the workplace, and much closer to home, our marriages. This is where the life of holiness we were introduced to right at the beginning of the book is lived out. But more than that, as we uh, see going through these verses today, this is also where the life of suffering is truly experienced and where the real evangelistic life is lived out. And that's really important. These last two points are really helpful as we sort of head into this, otherwise we're going to miss it. Peter's not merely giving us directions as to how to live well for Jesus. He is showing us how we live for Jesus while we're suffering for him in order to make him more known in our suffering for the glory of God. And we know that partly because of what we were told last week. Where did we finish the last first chapter of Peter? If you like, chapter 2, verse 9, that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who are God's possession in order that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvellous light. God has made us into priests, into the same function that Israel was meant to have in the Old Testament to declare to all the nations of the world around them of the excellent, incredible God that had revealed himself to them, who had shown them mercy. In other words, we are supposed to be a community of people who, in our offices in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our marriages, are speaking about the Lord Jesus and how glorious his mercy is. That's our immediate context of this passage. The trouble is, we are living in a context where people don't enjoy us living out or speaking the gospel to them. Britain, I think, is returning to a context not a million miles away from the churches that Peter is writing to in Turkey. We're not being persecuted or killed necessarily, but we are being marginalized, slandered suffering on the wrong side of liberalism. 
just because of the Christ we confess and the ethics we follow. And no one likes that, and our instinct is to put our head in the sand and to, and to shut up. But Peter has a really radically different prescription for the situation when your evangelism doesn't get traction in the world. For when you speak about Jesus, instead of people being delighted, people are hostile. And that prescription is found in this big section that we hit this morning. Just look at verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2 for me, which this acts as the sort of introduction heading for this brand new section, the, the, the verse um, out of which Peter's sort of next mini-argument uh, flows. And we'll see this emphasized in details, beloved. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, there are two things going on in here uh, in these opening verses. One, it's a given that when uh, people speak about Christians broadly, they do so as if they are a bad thing, as if they are evil. It's not simply that Christians used to be as sort of the goody-two-shoes sort of people that we were, say, about 40 years ago. That's how the church used to be seen, odd, pious, but harmless. But now society would go so far as to say that Christians are immoral, or bigoted, discriminatory, dangerous whether it's their stance on abortion or end-of-life care or sexual ethics, matters of gender, they are a danger to the liberal order. They will speak against you as evildoers. At, at some point in, in, in the course of human history, that is a given for the Christian in the world. We are living in the time of 1 Peter, the, the, the normal time, dare I say it, for the church in the earth. But secondly, not only will they speak against you, but your actions and your living are to have an evangelistic effect around you on those around you, so that as they speak against you as the danger that they think you are, evil to society, your good deeds that you deploy in return, you're saying no to passions of the flesh in all the areas that we're going to be looking at over the course of these next few weeks, in a, in a sexualized world, in a secular world, you're living under the grace of God and in submission to the lifestyle of the Lord Jesus as we live as this holy people, precious in his sight, in all the areas that Peter's going to detail, as we do all those things, some may be brought to the realization as to what on earth you are doing because you are living so radically that you can't but help show off Christ. And some may be brought to glorify God for themselves on the day that he visits. You see, Peter is not just detailing the best patterns of living. He's detailing the very best patterns for our evangelism in our living in a hostile world. That's how we stand for a minute. We don't stop talking about Jesus under the grace of God. We continue to. We do it more so through the way that we live. And to back that up in this passage, we see the bulk of suffering language. All the suffering language is sort of packed into these verses that we read today. Um, all alongside the hope for the unbeliever in each of the situations. Don't take my word for it. Chapter 2, verse 15 you may, by doing good in the area of submitting quietly and obediently to the emperor and to the government, silence the ignorance of foolish people or the ignorance of, of, of the sort of the ignorant talk against you as Christians. There will be people speaking about Christians in the church in ignorance, those who slander you without knowing anything about what you're trying to say. They don't really know you. And that is going to be hard as you live out your Christian life, as you walk obediently in society. They'll hate you for it. 
but your submissive living may silence them as you live for Jesus in front of them. I've actually got nothing to say against them. They're intrigued. Chapter 2, verse 20, when in your submitted to your masters, your bosses at work, and gently obeying them and working well, even for those who hate you, and, and, and not, doing, not suffering for doing bad things, but, but genuinely suffering for being good, you'll, you'll find that people notice that. You will suffer as you bring people to looking at the distinctive person of Christ himself who suffered for you. You do so, verse 21, as an example to others of Jesus exemplifying to others the pattern and the work of Christ himself who suffered for the sake of others. And finally, chapter 3, perhaps the most painful of all situations you could imagine. A Christian wife married to a husband who does not know the Lord and the isolation and loneliness and difficulty that that could bring. But by her living according to Jesus, by submitting, by her godly conduct in an uncomfortable environment, her husband may be one, verse 1 of chapter 3 without a word, by the conduct of her life. Can you see the pattern? In all these areas, you will live in accordance with Jesus to the glory of God in a hostile environment. A point to say on this, some of you were chatting to me last week about where is the evangelistic tenor in 1 Peter. It's here. It's here. After all the speaking about how you proclaim the gospel, it is here in the way that we live out our lives. And as we live this out in our hostile environment, this might bring you more hostility, but may also bring people to various responses. Verse 15, to silence. Verse 19, to thinking. Verse 12, to glorifying God. Chapter 3, verse 1, to being won over. And chapter 2, verse 21, to seeing Jesus himself for who he really, really is. And so after that long introduction, forgive me, uh, to this a remarkable part of 1 Peter. What should we do, therefore, in these situations in order for us to be like that? What is the one commandment that ties our living in society, our living in our workplaces, and our living in our marriages for the sake of Jesus and the gospel together? What ties all of those things together? How are we meant to live evangelistically in these deeply hostile environments as we live holy lives as a holy people for this imperishable inheritance? Well, the answer is really hard. For it is supremely unintuitive, it is deeply objectionable, and it is almost impossible. For Peter says, when you are mistreated and slandered and marginalized, you should always submit. That's our first point of only two this morning. One, as God's chosen elect exiles in the world submit and suffer for the glory of God. And that is hard because submission is not the intuitive response to suffering, is it? Let's imagine the workplace scenario. Here is someone being mocked and ridiculed for being a Christian. What do you do? You go to HR, you get a lawyer, and you, and you sue, potentially, for mistreatment. That, that's what our culture would encourage. Stand up for yourself. It's not good enough. Fight back. It stops here. It stops here right now. Well, Peter says in that exact same situation, you submit. Or on the national scale, that something goes against Christians in the law courts, as will increasingly be the case in our nation over the next few years. That's just true. It already is the case. What do we do? We are scandalized. We must march on Holyrood. We must march on Westminster. We, we must overturn it. Well, Peter says, submit. It's unintuitive. It's objectionable. It's almost impossible. But it is extremely distinctive to the Christian and to the Christian alone. 
This is not the way that anyone else in the world responds to mistreatment or slander, not one single people group. And in fact, I want to suggest, as we've been studying this, that only Christians are able to do this extraordinary thing. Not because we are anything extraordinary, sort of me as a person, Sam Orr, but because of the Christ that we follow. Only a Christian can choose to respond in this way because of the powerful motives and encouragement that we'll come to right at the end of this talk. But that is really what Peter wants us to do. And listen how his language doesn't leave much room for error here. Verse 13. Be subject, writes Peter, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honour everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the emperor. Now again, that would be relatively easy to do, wouldn't it, in a perfect society, in a time and place where your emperor was God-fearing, where the laws of the land sort of worked in your favour. They were sort of designed to protect and defend Christian liberties and values. But at the time that Peter is writing to this group of Christians, that really wasn't the case. The Roman emperor at the time, he, he did make a basic distinction between good and evil. So if you murdered somebody, you would be in trouble with the state. And Peter says, well, that's a good thing. Praise the Lord for that. But it wasn't a society at all where the laws of the land were aligned in any way to, to being what a Christian would want all the time. Nonetheless, says Peter, you are to be subject to him, and not even to be subject to him in a kind of begrudging, disgruntled, sort of moody kind of way because I have to. Be subject in a way that honours everyone and honours the emperor himself. We actually can't get away from this language. It's very uncomfortable. It's just here. It's in the Bible. That is, you live in a way where you are pleased to speak well of those in authority over you for the Lord's sake. It seems to be extremely unintuitive. It almost goes too far. Can God really be asking us to submit to every authority and law in the land? We know that very soon that might become impossible for us, where, where the law of God and the law of the land go diametrically opposed to each other. And Peter is quite clear, actually, in terms of what he means. He's very clearly saying, well, before you honour the emperor, what's your, what's your overriding fear? Your fear of God. Fear God, honour the emperor. He's your overarching fear. He is ultimately the one you obey and follow. There's no contest. Obviously, if the emperor is saying that reading the Bible is a crime or, or properly meeting together um, um, continuously it is a crime, well, we're going to have to commit a crime. We're just going to have to do that because God tells us otherwise. The people to whom Peter writes this letter in a few decades are going to have to disobey the emperor because Christianity is going to be outlawed. But even then, I can still live publicly an honourable life, submitting to the laws I can and not dishonouring those over us or anyone around us, even then in the way that I speak, in the way that I conduct myself. Don't use the cover of the fear of God, in other words, as an excuse to be socially disobedient or to be aggravating, to be bitter when you talk about your leaders, thrashing them in private, burning them in public, gluing your hands to the pavements, dare I say, sparking civil disobedience, making life hard for your neighbours and your friends. You fear God and you live peaceably with people watching on as you fear and honour uh, the, the, the government that God has placed over you for your good. 
Don't be nuisances like others might be. Don't shout your mouth off. Don't be angry and bitter and like the political discourse at the moment in the West, so crude and crass and partisan and divided. Honour everyone. Speak well of everyone, civil and political. I remember once being in a car, in the car with Toby, and we'd just come back home. It was during one of the many elections, if you remember, we had several years ago. There was one every two weeks. And we sort of uh, pulled up uh, into our driveway, uh, and, and, and someone was at the door pushing parliamentary material through our letterbox. And Toby asked, Daddy, who is that? And I sort of spat out the words, oh, he's a politician. And Toby asked, what is a politician? And I was just about to say, well, a politician, Toby, is generally a liar who promises to give you everything, but when you vote for him, he takes it all away from you, and then he asks for you to vote for him again. They're the scourge of the earth. I'm sick and tired of them. It's doing my head in. And then I caught myself in that moment, which is rare for me, and, and, and one Peter sprang to mind. And so instead, I said, oh, well, a politician, Toby, is someone who is voted for by us but appointed by God to look after us in the country and to make sure we have food and power and electricity and water and a house and a job and to keep us safe from people who'd want to harm us. And Toby said, oh, it's a good thing that God gives us politicians. And I said, yes, it is, Toby. It really, really is. Now, that might be a stupid analogy. It also might be a bit saccharine. I'm not like that all the time. <laughs> Much to my shame, I, I wish I were. But do we live in that kind of way in regards to our politicians? That doesn't mean we don't need to talk about them and, 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 and talk about things that have gone wrong, but, but, but do we speak well of them? Do we have those kind of conversations in a good manner? You know, it, it, even in the laws that we're living under at the moment, I, I, sometimes I just have to say, you know what, I actually can't imagine being in their position at the moment. It's almost impossible for them. Let's pray for them, as much as we might disagree with them. Do we pray for them? That, that, that is a command in the New Testament to pray for our leaders. And if I'm perpetuating what I wanted to say to Toby, I am slowly growing a son who despises politicians, doesn't like authority. He's unlikely to be living the submitted life. He won't honor or respect people above him. He'll become like everyone else around him, Individ individualistic and a sort of anti-establishment. Live distinctly, says Peter. Don't rebel. Don't speak harshly. Don't glue your hands to the M25. Honour those over you and you fear God. But moving on, even worse than that, verse 18, what about in the workplace? Subjects be servant, sorry, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. There's the phrase that really smarts, isn't it? We can bear the first half of that sentence, being subject to our fair bosses, the gentle boss. Okay, I'm happy to do that. He's earned my respect. But Peter pushes it and says, even in the case where the boss doesn't deserve your respect and, in fact, deliberately mistreats you, yes, be subject to them even then. Again, can God really be expecting us to do this? Does God really expect us to be a doormat? Does he, does he really mean to subject ourselves to a boss when our suffering is just not fair, where it is cruel and unjust and deliberate? God can't mean that, surely. That's what the unions are for. Well, this is so very difficult. And, and I think in this area of our lives in the workplace, it hits a lot closer to home than maybe honouring our government. 
and, and I've done a lot of reading on this passage, as you can imagine, more than any other passage in 1 Peter, and I really think Peter is just saying that. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. In fact, he clarifies it again in verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows whilst suffering unjustly. Not, not suffering for, for bad things that you've done, suffering unjustly for the good things that you are doing in your workplace. You're being treated in a way that is not fair, but you submit, and God is honoured by you putting up with that. That's what it really says. That means that you are not fighting for your own ends in your workplace. It means that you genuinely might have to let injustices lie, and that is incredibly hard. That you have to accept the verdict given over you, even when it is demonstrably unfair. And you not only accept it, but you continue working for that boss just as you always had with dedication and submission, doing the very best you can for him or for her. As if you're working for God himself. That's the premise here. This is a gracious thing, mindful of God. It means you walk away from a conversation where you accept an unjust ruling by your boss and you honor your boss, you'll submit to them by not slagging them off in the conversations afterwards. You don't shout them down, you don't talk about them behind their back, shout off your frustrations in the kitchen or the water cooler, even when everyone is on your side. And that is so hard. You remain quiet and you submit. I know that this sits... And easily with some of us in this room, all of us in this room, maybe some of us more than others, as I say, it's, it's really hard. I'm very aware as I say this as well that I don't work in, a, in the kind of environments that you guys are working in. I can't even imagine, if I'm honest. It's really difficult. How can we? How dare that be the way we have to live? Is Peter really saying that? I, I think he is. But Peter moves on to something which I think is even harder than that. And that is the final scenario of a marriage, a marriage in general, but specifically a marriage that is unequal, where a woman has become a Christian and who finds herself now married unequally to a non-Christian husband or to a husband who just won't obey the law of the Lord. And if we thought submitting to a pagan emperor and an unjust boss was uncomfortable enough, then these words of, of, of uh, chapter 3, verse 1, are, are really quite on the edge of being dangerously intolerable to our culture. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Words that might well genuinely get us into trouble in a few years' time. And not just in the really good Christian marriages, which is hard enough for a woman to have to think about in and of itself, but also in unequal marriages. So, uh, Peter continues, that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And not even that... <laughs> gets more uncomfortable. He continues, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart of the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is, in God's sight, very precious. Wow, Peter. <laughs> You're making it really uncomfortable for us. What is, what is going on here? Well, for one thing, as uncomfortable as you might find this, Peter is very clear in carrying the biblical principle of the roles of men and women all the way through the Bible unashamedly. Men and women are created wonderfully unique, beautifully and irreversibly different in gender, role, and person. 
but united and supremely equal in redemption and salvation. Notice in the whole of this letter, there is no distinction of who gets this incredible eternal inheritance. Every man, woman, and child are equal in the sight of God. Peter says this in verse 7 of chapter 3 when he talks to the husbands who do not get off the hook. We're going to come to you guys later, us guys. Um, Love your wives, honor them, for they are heirs with you under the grace of life. This is radical teaching on women in this day and age. In fact, Peter is writing this very instruction to women married to non-Christian husbands because I think so many women were becoming Christians seeing the way that Jesus and the Gospels treated them. It was so attractive. They were becoming Christians. Many men weren't, leaving these household imbalanced, uncomfortable. Peter wants to encourage these wives as much as he wants to encourage all of us to submit to our government and our workplace. And so in any marriage under the Lord Jesus, within the roles of men and women in marriage, set out in his creation ordinance all the way back in Genesis 2, Adam created first, women women created second to help him and perfect him. Don't forget, Adam was biblically unfinished and imperfect without Eve. So using that biblical principle of the roles of man and wife, in this church family, we need to be asking, in our marriages before the Lord, are you wives submitting as your husbands lead under the headship of the Lord Jesus, praying for them and loving them and helping them because we really need your help. And for those who are in difficult marriages or unequal marriages, and I don't think that includes anyone here watching from Redeemer this morning, but if that is you watching from somewhere else, that the whole force of this passage is that by your gentle and loving activity towards your husband, as you go about your daily living for God in front of him, as you speak the gospel where you can, but even when that is not possible, as you, as you go to church, as you raise your children or pray on your own, as, you, as your speech and your gentleness and your conduct concerning your life and the relationships with others and, and your friends that you live out in front of him, you do so as a beautiful, beautiful thing a supremely beautiful person before the Lord Jesus who sees you and before your husband who may over time begin to notice, may in time join you in being won over to the Lord Jesus as he submits as you have to your father. There is no promise here that he will come to know the Lord Jesus. There's no promise here that any of the people that we live this in front of will come to know the Lord Jesus. But the pattern of him getting to know Jesus, to be won over, is through that living, that imperishably beautiful way. And the word of imperishable beauty is powerful here, which brings us to the braiding of hair stuff. It's worth looking at this. Peter's not out and out forbidding the braiding of hair, the wearing of jewellery, specifically to the women he's writing to. Indeed, if he were, he'd have to be forbidding the wearing of clothes. (laughs) It's... It's it's all put into the same sentence. He's not doing that. He's making a simple point that what you do to your outside selves isn't what makes you beautiful. Or it it isn't what, and it shouldn't be what what makes you beautiful to your husbands. Um, Braided hair and jewellery in particular, and certain clothes, those were very deliberate words for Peter, talking about the the, the situation that he's talking to. In in Roman provinces, it was braided hair and and golden jewellery, which sort of demonstrated sort of a a, a sexualised beauty in, in that culture. And so for us today, as Christian women, you know what kind of clothes you wouldn't wear out in public or at church, for example. I think that's what Peter's getting at here. You make wisdom calls on that. That that kind of clothing isn't what makes you beautiful. And for women in general, for for wives in general, for for Christian wives married to non-Christian husbands in particular, he says the most incredible thing over you 
Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight very precious. Again, quiet and gentle words that are really incendiary. It is not that you can't be prime minister, ladies. It's not that you can't be the best at your field in any area of society. It doesn't mean that you can't hold down a career and be a good mum at the same time. It means you don't have to make yourself any more beautiful externally than you already are in front of the Lord Jesus Christ. It means your beauty is all wrapped up in the way that you gently and quietly conduct yourselves, as all Christians are asked to gently, quietly conduct themselves in all these areas of life. As you make yourself beautiful, not for your friends, not even for your husband, but for the Lord, who loves you with an imperishable love, who gives you his imperishable inheritance, who makes you imperishably beautiful. And what of husbands? Well, read the last verse. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. In short, if we men are disrespecting our wives sexually and faithfully, deliberately, slanderously, even through neglect, well, very simply, there is just no place for that in God's kingdom. You can't expect your prayers to be answered by your father when you are neglecting and not listening to or heeding the requests or needs of your wife. That's just, that's just a reality. It's a spiritual difficulty for you. And the progress and manner and health of your marriage before the Lord rests on you. It rests on me. Will we honor our wives in public and in private? Will you champion her in public and in private? Do you eye roll when you talk about her to your mates? Oh, honestly. Do you look elsewhere for beauty? There's just no place for that behavior in God's kingdom. We need to repent if that's the case. We need to honor our wives. And all of us in our marriages are going to get all of this so very wrong. That is why Peter wants to make sure that this is built under the whole of what has happened in chapter 1. You are set for an eternity. You are living under the grace of God. You have been born into a brand new experience of living and holiness that you couldn't have done without the Lord Jesus working in you. You will get there. And that brings us to the weaker vessel language. I do want to mention this because it's hard, bruising language to our ears. I think it makes a very helpful point, however, in all of this as we draw this bit of Peter's teaching to a close. And again, if any of you want to come back to me on any of this, then please do email me or chat to me. Some of you emailed this week. Forgive me for not getting back to your emails. That There's a number of you, and, 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 and I will do. But what is Peter going on here with the weaker vessel stuff? Well, I think the secular accusation of this passage could be does this not open the door for total spiritual and physical abuse of a woman? Especially those who are unequally married, to demand submissiveness sorry, and then to call her weak. That is, that is really dangerous. Well, the biological truth is that men have an advantage physically over women. That is why the secular world says that. And so men are warned here very severely not to abuse that advantage in any way. Abuse of any kind is anathema to God and his kingdom. Thousands of women need refuge from cruel men who despise them and mistreat them. But that, that, that is no real marriage. Just this week, uh, another young woman was murdered at the hands of a man in a South London park. It's been all over our news. The onus here is to be radically different men to that kind of manhood and masculinity. The onus here is on the husband to defend and protect 
And regardless of how the world sees this language, we Christian men are asked to do that. It is demanded of us not to live like the world, not to use and abuse and mistreat and throw our weight around. In Peter's day especially, this teaching would have been radical. It is no less immediate for our modern-day context. Men, you have no upper-handedness in your marriage in that regard. Rather, you are to treat your wife as your equal before the Lord Jesus. Now, as we come to a close, and I have spoken for a long time, why do we do this? To be masochists? Not at all. Let's remember the premise of the whole passage. Chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Abstain from passions of the flesh that wage war against your souls. All of these are our passions of the flesh. For lots of us, it'll be lots of different things. And they embattle us. Keep fighting. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. That either means that they'll understand that you are right before Jesus or they might actually come to glorify God. Chapter 2, verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good and submitting, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Chapter 3, verse 1. Be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they might be one. You see, the temptation for the Christian after having been told how significant we are in Christ, how loved we are, how much we are given an eternity in this inheritance, it is to carve out an entirely independent life, not recognizing any other authority or structure over us. That's actually very tempting. I'm a Christian. I belong to God himself. Why should I bow the knee to you? Why should I respect anyone? Why should I listen to Boris or Nicola or the speed limit or, or my husband or my wife or my evil boss? Well, well, Peter sort of urges the opposite response. Because you have such a high calling, submit. All the time. To everyone. Be subject to every institution. To be subject to your masters. Be subject in your marriages. The goal of which is your own vindication before them, before the Lord Jesus, and perhaps their salvation. And that is because this way of living is so, so, so radical. It should be impossible to ignore by anyone who watches on. The lifestyle in the end persuades the slanderer, we pray. the the, the non-Christian husband, the evil boss, the society around you at large, that they got it wrong about you. All those Christians, they say, oh, they're they're bigots, those Christians. Well, that's what they say, but but then when they know a Christian, the words don't stick. It's what I want to say about Christians, your friend might say, but but, but it's not true of her, or it's not true of him, or it's not true of my neighbour. I can't really pin anything on them. In fact, it doesn't seem to be true about any Christian I've met. I want them to be bigots. I really want them to be. I've called them bigots. I don't like what they stand for. It doesn't make sense to me. I'm uncomfortable around them. But he really loved his boss when he treated him like dirt. I saw it. I I cannot get my head around that. He never slagged him off. I I give her a hard time for her faith in the home, and, and I'm just not interested. And she continues to love me. She's so gentle to me. I don't get it. I can't pin anything on them. I can't say anything bad against them. That's what this passage is talking about. It's uncomfortable for them. I'm genuinely intrigued. I want to keep watching. I want to know more. This living is so radical that it cannot but help be noticed. Bringing people who hate you to at least confusion at best possible salvation. Indeed, this living is so radical that it is almost impossible to live. And that brings us very, very quickly onto our last point this morning as we close. For our last question in all of this, as we contemplate the sheer weight of having to live like this, is how on earth can we? 
And the answer, of course, comes in verses 21 to 25 of chapter 2, right in the heart of this whole passage. You can do this. You can live this way. You suffer. You submit because this is exactly how Christ lived and suffered and submitted himself. And it was in and through this very suffering and this radical submission that he won you to salvation. Second point, we live this because Christ submitted himself to suffering and death for our salvation. For 21, to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like straying sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The only people who can possibly live this way are Christians, and only because of Christ. Because the only person who did truly live this way, obediently and never failing, is Jesus Christ. Because Christ did it first and because he did it for us. You see, Peter, as we know, never asks us to do anything without giving you the fullest motivation for doing so. Time after time, the greatest motivation for living as an elect exile in these bruising, self-effacing ways in a world that hates you is Christ himself. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, meaning that he didn't suffer for doing bad. He didn't suffer because the mud thrown at him stuck and he was found out. All the skeletons in the closet began to open. No, he was totally innocent. And he suffered as an innocent. Neither was deceit found in his mouth, meaning when people went trawling through his life trying to find things that they could pin their slander on, there was nothing to find. They couldn't even get him to talk about the things that were going on against him when he was doing good. And so they're silenced. They were embarrassed by that. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, meaning that he didn't run to HR. He didn't run to his mates. He didn't go to the courts. He didn't sue. He didn't decide, okay, enough is enough. This has got to stop. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to his father. That's who he's talking about, who just judges justly. It's extraordinary. It is extraordinary what we are being asked to do. It is almost impossible. But it is nothing that Jesus has not lived himself in much worse ways that we could imagine. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't pay back evil for evil. He simply entrusts himself to God and his judgment in the end, and he is our example. What would Jesus do, to use a 90s Christian slogan? He would shut up and he would put up. He would be a doormat. He was. It's not intuitive, especially for the one who is king of the universe with the highest standing in the world, who is the glory of God the Father. Jesus' response to suffering was very unexpected and it was radically distinctive. But Christ's suffering, finally, is not just our example. It is also the means by which we, as evil people who hated him and slandered him and unjustly insulted him, were won over into the people who glorify him. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 
For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. This is our propitiationary sacrifice. Every phrase of these verses comes directly from that passage that we read earlier, from Isaiah 53, the song of the suffering servant, the servant who was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the sin that was ours placed on him, the perfect son of God, the perfect servant of God who was to die in order to bring you to him, the one who did not look beautiful, the one who you would not have picked out in a crowd, you could not notice, who did not wear or dress in ways to shock and demand affection. No, his imperishable beauty was in his gentleness. His proclamation was in his silence. His healing was given in his wounds. His glory was in his cross. His victory was over the grave. His vindication was in his resurrection. And his inheritance is in his eternity, which he gives to us. His sheep as a great shepherd who oversees our souls as we suffer and submit like he did to bring people like he did to be able to die to sin and to live to righteousness and to be found to be imperishably, eternally beautiful. Let's pray together as we close. Father, God, thank you and praise you for these remarkable words this morning, hard words, uh, words that... uh, worry us in many respects as we think about how difficult it is to live this way. Heavenly Father God, we pray that we would hear these words in the book of 1 Peter, in, 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 in the discourse of incredible grace that is over us as we repent of sin that we get wrong, that the, the mistakes that we make in our marriages all the time. Father God, forgive us. The way that we just don't submit to our, in our workplaces, the way that we really, really struggle to, to obey what is going on in the world, to, 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 to pray for and love those who are in authority over us. Father God, forgive us. It is really hard, and, and you know it is hard. Peter knows it's hard. It's why this book is being written. Heavenly Father God, I pray that you would really help us on the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we as living stones are built on the foundation of the living stone, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would begin to, a little bit more and more each day, under the grace of God, live this way so that our conduct may be on show, not for our sake, but for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the sake of his death and his resurrection, for the sake of the good news that he wants all people to know. Father God, help us as a church family, help us as individuals, help us in our marriages, in our workplaces, in our friendships, in society at large, to to, to live this way and to see it as a good thing as we suffer just for a little while, waiting for the imperishable beauty in us to be fully reformed and redeemed as we wait for our imperishable inheritance with the same Lord Jesus Christ who suffered who died for us, who did not speak, who did not slander, who did not shout back, but submitted himself to death so that we might be saved and enter into his glory. We pray all these things with great thanksgiving, with great joy and with great hope. In the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.